Well, good evening, everyone. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You know, when you read all those New Testament epistles and you see all the greetings that go on, the, hey, so-and-so sends his greetings and send your greetings with this guy and all that, and, and you kind of skip over it because we don't know them fellas, right? We don't know them guys and gals. We just know that they're names. But it, it impresses me whenever I come to a gospel meeting, and then it means a little bit more to me because I make all these connections with people. We all know the same people. Uh, uh, me and uh, Matt and Angela were making connections last night about mutual friends, and uh, me, Jerry, and uh, Suzette were doing the same thing tonight, and uh, it's just kind of cool, isn't it, to be able to go places, you know, a state away and know that you know all the same people. It does mean I have to behave myself while I'm here because we know all the same people, but no, that's a good thing. I mean, you know, the, we talk about blood being thicker than water, but there's nothing thicker than the blood that connects us through Jesus Christ. Uh, thankful for you all, and you've been a, a great encouragement to me, and I've just been so thankful to be with you, uh, and I hope the things that are said tonight uh, will be helpful to you uh, as I know they are to me. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse Verses 3 through 8 says the following. Verses 3 through 8. We read that this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who don't know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. One of the greatest problems uh, that we men are going to struggle with in this life as we dwell in these earthly vessels is going to be the lust of the flesh. Uh, this is a collective problem. Uh, and any male who is not too young to have developed these impulses or who's not too old to have watched them fade away shares in this fight. And the world, of course, is going to exploit this. Uh, they parade around and promote perversion and fornication and nakedness as if this is just a wonderful thing, uh, declaring it uh, a form of expression in which we ought to celebrate and to embrace. Uh, pornography addiction is rampant. Uh, so is sexual abuse, adultery, and many, many good Christian men have unfortunately been called in its snares and some have even destroyed their lives giving into it. So this is the question I have to ask myself, and I have asked myself this when I've failed in this regard. Ryan, what in the world is your problem? You know, I mean, really, men, what is our problem as it pertains to this sin? Why can't we get our act together? Why are we so drawn to this particular temptation? It seems more than a lot of others that people struggle with. Well, if you look in Genesis chapter 2, this probably won't surprise the majority of us here, but the sexual impulses that are there are there because God put them there. Sexual desire is a part of man's biological makeup. Now, that is not to suggest that God set us up to fail. Of course He didn't do that. He designed us this way, and that means that He fully intends for us to fulfill these desires. But there is a proper time and place for it, and that is within the institution of marriage. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 says, Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and be 
joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. See, ladies, it's not that we're perverts. Now, some men are. But the reason why men are attracted and drawn toward women is because that's how God designed us. Proverbs 5 verses 18 and 19 says, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth as a loving deer and graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. And so when it's within the marriage relationship... God approves and He expects men to satisfy these impulses. As the first part of Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says, marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. So in that setting, the consummation of these impulses, that's not lust. That's a blessing and a privilege that has been provided by God for both men and women to enjoy. But it's only when it is outside of marriage and we give in to those impulses, that's where God disapproves. Now, it may be that in verse, thir- uh, verse 4 of Hebrews 13 that in marriage, the marriage bed is to be undefiled. But if you look at the second part of that verse, he says, For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Matthew 5, verse 28 that we looked at last night. Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a lo- woman with lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So look at that. Same desire, right? Same impulses. In one situation, it's not sinful, and in fact, it's a blessing to be enjoyed, but in every other situation, it's sinful. God created man to express and to consummate this desire only within the confines of marriage. And so that's what I want to talk about with you tonight, is I want to talk about this particular sin, why it gets us, what it does to us, and how we can hopefully just get out there and actually be men and start resisting some of these temptations. You know, you'll remember last night that um, we spent most of our time urging our sisters in Christ to, you know, resist displaying uh, your sexuality through your attires. We talked about modesty last night. But, you know, whenever I talk about modesty, I, I never I never intend or to, to mistakenly give someone the impression that women are the problem and that men should feel like we can make women the scapegoat for our lustful tendencies. That's not the case at all. I was supposed to be one line across. I will get it next time, Steve. <laughs> but, oh, look at that. It's covering it up. <laughs> women are not the problem. That's what it's supposed to be saying. Women are not the problem. Folks, that's foolishness. We can't, we can't say, well, you know, it, it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be this way if it wasn't for women. We can't say that, men. Now, while modesty and nakedness can certainly contribute to the problem, it's not the problem. And I'm also concerned that we men like to take this problem of lust and we kind of put it out there like, you know, this is the unsolvable sin. It just can't be defeated in the lives of God's children while we remain in the flesh. I mean, we'll admit that lust needs to be tempered, but that it can never be completely eliminated. And so when we say that kind of thing, we almost set ourselves up to lose the battle before we even begin to fight. And that's unacceptable. And I'll tell you why it's unacceptable. It's unacceptable because prisons are filled with people who gave in to lust. It's unacceptable because families are destroyed every single day because of lust. It's unacceptable because careers are ruined. Our fellowship with one another as Christians becomes tainted because lust trains men to see their Christian sisters not as human beings with a soul, but objects to gratify their fantasies and imaginations. Brethren, 
the stakes are too high to just chalk up this problem with lust as some kind of inevitable loss. And if the consequences weren't enough to show that, God tells us in no uncertain terms that he expects us to win this battle and that our souls are on the line. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, uh, Paul says it this way, Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19, that the deeds of the flesh are evident. Galatians 5.19 Which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I know I skipped a few things there, but I was trying to get to that last part. See, See, God knows us. He knows what we're capable of. God knows how we're wired. God knows our strengths and weaknesses. God knows our do's and our our can't do's, okay? What an amazing thing that we put men on the moon. I mean, think about that. How in the world did we as mankind take large pieces of metal and figure out how to fly them things into outer space, land on the moon, and then get back, assuming you're not one of them conspiracy theorists? <laughs> this is, oh, we didn't really land on the moon. I actually got a couple people back in church who believe that uh, back home. <laughs> but, but, I mean, but what we still do in airplanes, that's not a conspiracy theory, right? Most of us have probably been on an airplane, right? Hot, just these huge chunks of metal, we get on those things. We don't even fear that. I mean, just think about the kind of things that, that we do. We've got computers in the palm of our hand now. I can talk to friends over in Korea on these things at 3 o'clock in the morning, my time or their time. It's, it's unbelievable what this little thing does that's in the palm of our hands. What I'm trying to suggest, folks, is we human beings, we are capable of so much. So then why, when it comes to conquering lust, do we just sell ourselves short and, and just kind of take this defeatist mentality toward it? No, that's not consistent. That's unacceptable. Not according to me, but according to God who demands that we be so consumed with the desires of Jesus that it overrides any desire towards the female form. So let's talk about lust. I'm going to do my very best tonight to expose lust's many lies. And men, I I want you to understand this as I need to understand it. When I fail in this regard, every time you and I feel lustful tendencies, and the temptation is for you and I to gratify those tendencies, I want you to understand we are being lied to. We are being played for fools. The devil is trying to convince us that there is pleasure in giving into this sin when in reality all it leads to is pain. And I don't know a story in the Bible that illustrates this better, in my opinion, than that unfortunate episode between Amnon and Tamar in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And I'd like to invite you to turn there with me tonight. 2 Samuel 13. We're going to spend the majority of our time walking through this story and seeing what kind of observations we can make about lust and its lies. 2 Samuel 13. Let's begin with the first two verses. It tells us a lot. It was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, 
there are four primary characters in this story that we need to consider. And the first is not a character that we typically notice in this story, but God specifically calls our attention to the fact that this occurred fresh off the heels of David and Bathsheba, in which David allowed his own lust to control him, did it not? And now his son Amnon is about to do the same thing, like father, like son. I mean, it's, it's as if the beginning of Amnon and Tamar's story, God is trying to highlight for us the dreadful leavening effect that the sin of lust creates. Parents, uh, it is hard to teach our children self-control if we haven't learned to develop it over the decades uh, for our own selves. I mean, you, you can teach your kids about it, but actions are always going to speak louder than words, and I think this is especially true of children. It's always been this way. So I want us to understand, men, what's on the line here when we're talking about lust. This is not just about us. We're not just uh, about to destroy ourselves. The leavening effects of lust always ripple down to those that we love the most. And so David is a very prominent figure in this story, though he is not mentioned all that much. Very much so he is, all right? The second character is Amnon, okay? Now Amnon, who is from royalty, is probably used to getting whatever he wants and whenever he wanted it, right? I mean, is he not a symbol of American culture and the many conveniences and freedoms that we enjoy here? I mean, society of the day to teach, teaches us that if it feels good, do it. We rarely have to wait for anything anymore, not in this fast food technological and information age in which we find ourselves. We see something on Amazon that we like and we just click a button and it's hand delivered to our front door. You don't even have to go to that little checkout anymore. They got that, what is it called, the one click ordering? <laughs> they got all my information here, click, bang, the next day it's there. I mean, we talk like this is an incredible blessing to be in this country, and we pray to God thanking Him for this blessing, and I think we should continue to do so, but, I mean, let, let's be honest. In many ways, all these conveniences that we enjoy can become a curse if we're not careful, because what it can create and develop within us if we're not careful is a sense of entitlement. And brethren, the more we feel entitled to something, the more we're going to go after things that we are not entitled to. And that is exactly what we see happening with Amnon in this story. Amnon is a spoiled, privileged, rich kid who resents not being able to have what it is that he wants. I, I imagine the word no is probably not even in this boy's vocabulary. Okay, so you got David, you got Amnon, and then you've got Tamar, and it seems that Tamar's only fault is the fact that she's beautiful. Shame on her, right? Of course that's not her fault, right? And listen, I don't want to delve too much into the subject of uh, sexual abuse itself because, quite frankly, I don't feel qualified to even do that, though I do believe that this story helps us uh, to understand its intricacies more than others. Um, but I do want to just off offer this one thing by way of a tangent. One of the worst things that you can do to a victim of sexual assault is to blame them. 
The accuser and the accused should both be listened to. Everyone should be innocent until proven guilty, but we dare not blame an apparent victim of sexual abuse unless there is clear evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she is lying. Because, brethren, what this does is it silences real survivors and it emboldens perpetrators of sexual violence. Okay, um, That's all I'm going to say about that because I don't feel qualified to deal with that particular subject. But she didn't do anything wrong. She just happens to be beautiful. Now, the other character in this story is very much worth considering. And we learn about him in verses 3 through 5. It says that Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah. David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He said to Amnon, son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please, my sister, please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Uh, now, We've all met Jonadab before, haven't we, men? Now, someone might be thinking, I don't have a friend named Jonadab. No, you do. He's just going by another name, right? See, he's that friend at school, fellas, who eggs you on, that guy you shouldn't be hanging out with, that somehow man manages to manipulate you into removing moral barriers, and he makes things that look so hard look so easy. You know, that story is right. It did seem hard for Amnon to do anything to Tamar. He knew it was wrong. He knew he needed to be right by her, but somehow he happened to just be hanging around the wrong person who made what seemed so hard now look so easy. How does that happen today? Um, I, you know a lot of ways. But, but in keeping with the theme, why is it that when you're young, being a virgin makes you such an outcast? I mean, it is really something where we're at today, isn't it? We're actually living in a time when it is more shameful to admit your virginity than it is to deny it. And the Jonadabs at school, they will manipulate you into denying your virgin. Oh, oh man, don't tell me you're a virgin. <laughs> How pathetic, right? Young boys, listen. The only thing that is pathetic is when you allow those knuckleheads to play you like a fiddle and turn your morals upside down when you know better. Don't you hang around them, them school fools and who decry your virginity because that, that's something to be celebrated. Friendships with boys who objectify women are friendships you can afford to lose. And trust me, down the road, you will be glad that you did. And then there's the pretext for, he had the manipulative friend, there's the pretext for Amnon conceiving his lust uh, what, we, what we mean by pretext is that thing that Jonadab recommended that he do. Just pretend you're sick, get your dad to send Tamar into your room to feed you, and then do what you have to do. That's the pretext. Rarely will you find lust that has been conceived where there first didn't exist an avenue and in the form of a pretext to get there. Think about all the marital affairs the many fornications that have occurred because of some misleading activity or behavior that was intended to disguise the true intention. More often than not, that is how lust is conceived. Uh, you know, I've seen it and you have too. Some infidelity will be uncovered in the local church and it's, it's horrible. 
And then when that brutal storm calms and an autopsy is performed on that illicit relationship, it's interesting what you learn. The offender had honed in on some area of interest in the other person to exploit, some commonality, some mutual interest, some hobby, some shared desire, or perhaps a shared grief. He was there for her when her husband wasn't, and so she understands him better than anyone. He's her knight in shining armor. He's the one that she should have ended up with. And all he was doing was playing that pretext card, misleading her about his true intentions and using that as an inroad for future sexual gratification. Ladies, I want to say this to you. God will never send you someone else's husband. Never. And men, God will never send you someone else's wife. These young uh, unmarried couples um, that I'll cancel, counsel sometimes, and not cancel, <laughs> counsel uh, sometimes, sometimes I want to cancel, no. Uh, sometimes I'll give advice to, let's just say that, uh, in Auburn, um, who come to me, uh, they've crossed some lines, uh, they've made some mistakes. Um, you know, usually what we do, I say, well, well how did it happen? And it's interesting to listen to them talk step by step how they ended up in that situation to begin with. It, would be, it began with a, a simple, seemingly innocent request. Hey, you want to come over to the apartment tonight and watch a movie? That sounds pretty innocent, doesn't it? And yet some of these guys will admit to me full well that as they were asking their girlfriend to come over and do that, they had other things on their mind. It was a pretext is what it was. Oh, how lust creeps its ways into our lives through its many, many lies. There is not one promise, gentlemen, that lust can make to us that it can keep. All it leads to is pain, grief, and spiritual ruin. So those are the characters. That's the ploy. Let's talk about what lust actually does and what it actually is. First of all, lust cannot be reasoned with. In 2 Samuel 13, verse 11, here's what happens in the story. 2 Samuel 13, verse 11. It says, When Tamar brought them to him to eat, Amnon took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. And she tries to talk him out of it. She tries to reason with him. But young people, learn the lesson from Joseph and flee youthful lusts. Don't try to reason with them. Okay, Joseph, think about what happened between Joseph and Potiphar's wife. When that was going on, Joseph didn't sit down with Potiphar's wife and say, whoa, 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 I think we're going to make a mistake. Can we hold hands and pray about this? Joseph didn't do that. He, he didn't even say, no, no, we're not going to do this. And I'm not saying you shouldn't say no when you get in these kind of compromised situations, but Joseph didn't say that, did he? No, he got out of there. You know why he got out of there? Because you can't reason with lust when it reaches that level. Proverbs 6, verse 27 and 28. Y'all know this verse, right? Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? When your house is on fire, you don't sit there and say, uh, fire, can you and I talk about this before you start burning down my house? You don't do that because fire can't be reasoned with. No, you get out of the house. You flee. Lust cannot be reasoned with, folks. It cannot be reasoned with. It'll also always fail in every instance to deliver what it has promised us. Look in verse 14 of 2 Samuel 13. It says, however, Amnon wouldn't listen to her since he was stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her 
with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he loved her. I thought that he loved her. I mean, the boy made himself sick over it, resorted to deception just to be with her, and now he hates her? It's interesting, isn't it? Why? Why did he hate her? Well, there's probably a few reasons. Um, I suspect that that fantastical delusion that he felt didn't match up with reality because having rarely measures up to the wanting, doesn't it? Temptation is never as great as it promises, and that's the case with every sin. Sin promises us fulfillment. It promises us joy if we give ourselves over to it. But we know this because we're all sinners here. It never fulfills what it promises. Never. The fulfillment of it is always much uglier and disturbing than we can ever imagine, and that was the case with Amnon. You know, sometimes we do this because we think the grass is greener on the other side and it only looks that way because it's sitting on top of a septic tank if that makes sense. I think Amnon hated her because he was ashamed. He knew he was wrong. He knew he had failed to do right by his sister. And so his solution, just like Adam and Eve, it was to hide, to quickly dispose of Tamar, hoping to forget the whole thing because I think he also hated her, brethren, because he hated himself. There is something about the sin of lust that robs us of ourselves, men. It robs us of ourselves. It takes away our dignity and it takes away our humanity. And, and we need to be talking about this because we always, we're always thinking about this and we think about fornication. Like we're always thinking about, well, pregnancy and disease. We think about those things. Well, in most cases, you can recover from those things in most cases, okay? What we don't talk about is the fact that casual sex outside of marriage and giving into lust, it violates human dignity. You can protect yourself from pregnancy and protect yourself from disease, but gentlemen, we cannot protect ourselves from destroying our dignity and our humanity. And that's why we feel gross later. That's why we feel gross. We feel gross because we allowed ourselves to be degraded as a human being and our conscience that God put there is reminding us that our body was too sacred to be used the way we just used it. And I think that's part of what 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 18 means. So I think it means several things, but I think that's part of what it means in the last part of that verse when Paul says, flee immorality, and then he says, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. And brethren, a, man, a person who is terrified of living with this kind of guilt like Amnon was, they are always going to look to point the finger at the other person. Amnon hated her because he was angry with her, but his anger was misdirected. Amnon hated Tamar because he hated himself for what he did to her. And so the mere thought of her now, it's nothing more than just this perpetual reminder of how he had robbed himself of his dignity and robbed himself of his self-respect for nothing more than cheap fleeting pleasure. So how was he going to live with himself now? Well, outside of full repentance, the only way he knew how, by dehumanizing and objectifying her. Look in verse, uh, the last part of verse 15. For going further in the story, it says that Amnon said to her, get up, go away. But she said to him, no, 
because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you've done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, Now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Now that phrase, that's why I've got an underline here, this woman, that's important here. Underline it in your Bibles if you do that kind of thing. Because this is her half-sister. This is his half-sister. She is family. But what lust does is it trains us men to dehumanize women and to see them as nothing but objects. That's why I don't think Amnon ever truly loved her because love always seeks the best of another person, but lust looks to use another person for their own self-centered gratification. To Amnon, Tamar was no longer his half-sister. She was no longer someone's daughter. She was no longer somebody's friend. She was no longer a special part of God's creation. All she was now to Amnon was this woman. And we know this, but I, I, we need to be reminded of it, myself included, that women are not a collection of body parts for our own selfish pleasure and amusement. Women have souls, just like we do. And women are full of wonderful things that make them human, just like we are, strengths and weaknesses, quirks and fears, insecurities and anxieties, vulnerabilities, likes, dislikes, hopes, and dreams. Men, that is what makes her real. And unless we retrain ourselves to see women as God made them, we are never going to love them as souls who need Jesus. And that's why Paul said what he did to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, a minister of the gospel. And in verse 2, he said, Treat the older women as mothers, and you treat the younger women as sisters in all purity. Because that's what they are. They are our sisters, and we need to protect them. Do you know who is truly dehumanized when lust is conceived? It's not women, men. It's, it's us. We're the ones that are dehumanized. Because, and I'm just going to be blunt about this, lust turns us into fools. I have to because I have it written there, right? But it, it really does. Is this not what Tamar tried to say to Amnon? Back in verse 12. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Don't do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And then look at this. As for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. This man that Tamar is trying to talk sense into, he really is acting like a fool. He's, he's acting crazy. Because, brethren, that's what untempered lust does. It makes men crazy. It makes men do things they would never do under ordinary circumstances. That is the irony of consummated lust. That's the irony. That dehumanizing that Amnon was trying to do to Tamar, that dehumanizing was only apparent because she's the only sensible human being in this story. The irony of lust is that Amnon is the one that's not acting like a human being. He's actually dehumanizing himself, trying to dehumanize Tamar. And he's not the only one in the Bible that, that does this, is he? You know, Samson uh, sold the secret to his strength to Delilah because he was so taken by her, which first cost him his eyes and then ultimately his life. David, the prophet and sweet psalmist of Israel, a man after God's own heart, was so driven by lust that he slept with one of his closest friend's wives and then to cover up the pregnancy he had that friend killed. The wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, 
traded all that wisdom for foolishness when he allowed his lust to drive him to marry foreign women who quickly turned his heart away from God. And we know the story of Herod, who was so taken by his stepdaughter that she was able to manipulate him into giving her the head of John the Baptist. All four of these men that we just mentioned were powerful men. Powerful men who became fools. Because that's what lust does to us men. It turns men today into rapists and peeping toms. And Hollywood, they will parade this in the media like, oh, that's what real men do. They, they gawk at and objectify women. But make no mistake, that is just another one of lust's lies. Unbridled lust, that doesn't make men, it makes fools. Men, real men, are human beings of principle. Men are leaders in their home. Men are leaders in their church. When our wife and our children are weak, we are to be strong men because we are men. When the church is faltering, the Lord looks to us to grab the horns, by the bull by the horns. Real men dare to stand like Joshua because they stand up, stand up for Jesus. And when we fall, we quickly rise because we are men because love lifted me. Lust doesn't enhance our manliness, men. It diminishes us. And it makes us slaves to our impulses. Now, don't misunderstand my point. I mean, because just as God placed these impulses into our biological makeup, we, we know He made women beautiful as well. Women are beautiful creatures. I remember seeing my wife for the first time. I was driving back through into Kentucky. I think I was telling Matt and Angela this uh, story, so you'll hear the same joke over and over again. You know, but but uh, I was driving back into Kentucky in a church in Knoxville. I asked if I'd come and preach because a preacher got sick. I think that might have been some providence. But I remember getting in that pulpit, and the first 30 seconds I saw my wife. I, I didn't know she was going to be my wife then, but I, I saw someone I could see being my wife because as I was saying, good to see everybody tonight, I was singing, especially you. <laughs> I mean, because she was beautiful. That's not a sin. It's not a sin to recognize that a woman is beautiful. It's a sin to lust after her sexually when she doesn't belong to you. You know, there's a lot of beautiful houses too, but if you don't have the key, it doesn't belong to you, you don't get to go in. And young men, every time a Jonadab comes into your life and invites you to converse and participate in lustful talk or lustful incursions, which goes on in middle school and high school and college too, he's just inviting you to become a fool just like him. Well, after all this happened, um, after all this happened, um, well, I guess I don't have this point on the PowerPoint. Um, surely David was going to do something about this, right? Surely David was going to make this right. I mean, he's David, right? Nope. And that may be one of the saddest parts of the story. Look in verse 21 of 2 Samuel 13, verse 21. I had a slide for this, and I don't know what happened to it. But in 2 Samuel 13, verse 21, it says, When David or King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. And you know what the text indicated that he then did? Nothing. Now, the law of Moses clearly stated what was to be done in this situation. Now, you can turn to Deuteronomy 22 if you want. If you, if you don't want to, I'm just going to read verses 28 and 29 of Deuteronomy 22. Here's what the law of Moses said was supposed to happen 
when this Amnon Tamar situation occurred. Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29 says, If a man finds a girl who's a virgin who's not engaged and seizes her and lies with her and they are discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. But that didn't happen. Nothing happened. And I'm speculating here, but I suspect that David did nothing probably because he had a guilty conscience of what he had done. I suspect that. I mean, the episode basically begins just how it ended, showing us the dreadful leavening effects that lust has on the lives of our family and loved ones, doesn't it? Because he, when he did nothing, unrighteous Absalom eventually killed his brother Amnon, which caused bitterness and animosity from Absalom toward his father David, and that never healed. And this led Absalom to usurp the throne. That eventually led to Absalom's death. Oh, the leavening effects of lust. Not acting only perpetuates it. May we never, brethren, take a defeatist mentality toward this sin. We've got to fight on. I'll say this about Absalom. I mean, he, he's just as wicked as he could be. But probably the noblest thing Absalom ever did in his life was allow Tamar into his home in verse 20. Victims of sexual abuse, they need a safe haven. They need a family that loves them and builds them up and helps them in their recovery. Well, what are some ways that we can fight against this awful sin? We're going to have some overlap here again. I apologize for that. But I want to just give you three things, and the lesson is going to be yours. Um, that what that says there is that we need to pray without ceasing. If we pray with pure motives... God's not going to deny us the tools that we need for this fight. He wants us to win this fight. But we need to be content with His answer because His answer to our prayers might cost us. And we need to know that, that fact going in and not waver to make these sacrifices. I know it seems like we just can't beat this thing. It's like we've prayed before and it didn't go away. This is outside of, of the realm of possibility. But Ephesians chapter 2 and in verse 20 tells us that God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. And that power that works within us, brethren, is our faith. It's just a question, do we believe God? You know, we believed Him enough when He said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We believed Him in that, didn't we? That's why we're baptized. We believe He's going to forgive our sins. Do we believe that as much as we believe baptism? We're going to have to as it pertains to lust or we're not going to beat this thing. Do we believe that the one who commands us to beat it is going to provide us with the means to do so. And when He provides us with that means, are we going to accept the sacrifices we may have to make to beat it? Don't give up on prayer. If there was ever a sin that we need to pray about without ceasing, it's this one. Secondly, we need to learn the virtue of waiting on the Lord. We sing this, do we not? As much as we read it sometimes, Isaiah 40 verse 31 Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagle. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not grow weary. You know, it's true that we live in a culture of convenience and we love to buy now and pay later, but instant gratification can be a very destructive thing. Many times it costs us things beyond what we ever imagined. Parents, your children, while they are still young, 
need to learn the virtue of waiting. Stephen didn't even know it, but he gave me such a great illustration for this. I think it was Sunday night after services. We got home. Remember when you made popcorn for you and Jericho and you asked me if I wanted some and I didn't? But he made the popcorn for Jericho and he told Jericho, now don't touch it, it's too hot, we're going to have to wait. And of course, Jericho's up there on his lap. I mean, he's just staring at that popcorn. But even he told me, Mr. Ryan, I have to wait. And he's sitting there waiting. He's, he's watching that popcorn. I smell I didn't want any, but I smelled it. And I started changing my mind a little bit, you know, because it smells so good and there's butter on it. I mean, I know he was smelling it, but Jericho had to wait. You, I didn't say this to you, but I was thinking, you go, boy. Because, I mean, what you did there, that was so awesome. That's what little kids need. That's what our children need, parents. Our children need to learn how to wait on the small things while they're young so that when they get bigger, they'll learn how to wait on the bigger things that are going to come up in their life. And there are going to be bigger things that they're going to have to wait on too, aren't they? Teach your children to wait. Teach them to earn their way through life. Work them, work them, and work them to rid them of any sense of entitlement that this world may dangle before them. Teach them to wait. Now I know sometimes uh, some of us older folks never learn this. Um, and I just suggest that for guys like me, perhaps, you know, maybe wait on the smaller things. Unplug your internet for a day. Go for a day without AC. You know, decide you won't eat out for an entire week. You know, when you first start going to the gym, you don't decide you're just going to squat 500 pounds on day one, do you? You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to get injured, you're going to get discouraged, and you're not going to want to go back. You start with smaller ways and you build up your strength so you can tackle the bigger ways. Now understand that I'm not saying that if you struggle with lust, that you don't have to begin this battle on day one until you learn to conquer the smaller battles. What I'm saying is you start learning to wait on the little things because the little things add up. Abraham waited 25 years to see the fruit of his uh, promised fruit of his loins born. Joseph waited 13 years to be able to stand before Pharaoh. David waited a number of years after he was anointed to finally take the throne. And all through their waiting, what was happening is that they were being groomed and they were being pruned and molded and fashioned so that when God blessed them, they would have the strong enough character to use the blessing wisely. And so, you know, the, the, the virtue of waiting, I, I don't hear a lot of sermons on that. It's rarely discussed, but it's often mentioned in Scripture. It is a humongous key to learning how to overcome lust. Because while the waiting processing is occurring, finally, number three, what's happening is we're developing self-control. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul says here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, beginning in verse 2, that because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come again together so that Satan won't tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You know, sometimes unmarried men uh, who are looking forward to being married one day will look at this verse and say, all right, that's it. That's what I need to do. Once I get married, you know, all those desires will finally be satisfied anytime I want, right? Look at all the married people smiling right now. <laughs> that, that's not true. I don't, mean, I don't mean to be blunt, but I'm going to. Being married doesn't guarantee sex on the man. I'm sorry if that's the truth. You know why? Because your spouse is a human being with feelings, too, that must be considered. That's why. And frankly, there will be times when your spouse is not in the mood to be intimate. 
and marriage does not give you the right to insist otherwise. What I'm suggesting is that self-control is not just vital in singlehood, it's vital in marriage as well, and that means self-control needs to become a lifetime habit and needs to be cultivated while we're still young. To develop self-control, I would recommend to become aware of situations in your life uh, where self-denial is going to be called into action and then you set your mind on intentionally succeeding. Are you home alone and you're tempted to look at pornography? Work hard at not giving in and celebrate your successes when you don't. Create distractions and other interventions. Deliberately sabotage your internet connection. Go for a walk. This applies to whatever you may be experiencing trouble with, but find ways to limit and to moderate your actions. Whatever your struggle is, what I'm saying is you're going to get better at resisting it if you actually practice resisting it. Are you here tonight and do you struggle with this that we've been talking about, male or female? and you don't know what to do, I'll tell you one thing you don't need to do. You don't need to give up the fight. Seek help from God. Seek help from your brethren. But above all, don't develop a defeatist mentality about this sin because men, too much rides on this. Our families need us. It's time for us to be men. And men are men of principle and not passion. If you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight and you believe that he came and he lived here on this earth and he died and was raised to walk before he ascended to heaven and you're willing to confess with your mouth that he is Lord having repented of your sins, we'd love to baptize you tonight for the forgiveness of your sins, whatever your need might be. Come on forward while we stand, while we sing.